SETI, The Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, a science fiction novel series written and narrated by author Frederick Fishman. Book 1, Chapter 2. Conduit. He stepped back to the edge of the roof and gazed upward 
at the star field above. The light of Escondido blocked the fainter stars. Sam's cherubic face had changed since his fifth birthday. It was longer, and its expression was somewhat sadder. His eyes were still large, clear, and bright. His curiosity and intelligence were often mixed with the thoughts of the past and apprehension about the future. No matter how bright he was or eccentric, as most of his classmates saw him, he was still saddled with the emotional and biological changes of a teenager. Wanting to fit in while not being held back was not at all typical of his high school classmates. His grades were above average but not superior. They could have been, but his limited time was funneled into one area, into the astronomical brass ring, finding a signal from an extraterrestrial civilization, a radio signal from an extraterrestrial civilization. Finding alien radio signals sounded foolish and impossible to everyone except Sam. In the past several years, he had applied his computer and radio skills toward his goal. He knew quite well the work that had been done up to that point by Frank Drake's 60s project, Ozma, and his Cyclops had only been a start in a field from which most astronomers shied away. To those astronomers, the field was more a sociological fad and popular interest movement than true scientific exploration. It was the meat for science fiction writers or speculative documentaries that might appear on NOVA on PBS. Still, Congress had seen fit to explore the possibilities, providing minimal funding for NASA's SETI program. The radio telescope time would be squeezed into an already tight schedule, and new radio spectrum analyzers and computer programs would be developed. Scientists would study a limited number of stars capable of sustaining life on circling planets, only a widely scattered set of frequency. Sam had always believed, along with amateur radio telescope enthusiasts, amateur radio operators, 600,000 in the United States, and computer radio hackers, the possibility of a private citizen being the first human to directly detect an intelligent communication from a distant planet. NASA scientists and university astronomers would only admit in private the distinct possibility that a private citizen might be first. Of course, when funding was requested, that possibility was never uttered. It was the belief that he would be the first to kept Sam continuing to explore. But more than that, it was the desire to continue his father's work on that area at NASA and JPL that made him press on. It seemed natural to Sam, it was essential to Sam, that he do that. For him, it was an obsession. He was compelled to explore at an explosive time in his life when he was growing, changing, and discovering the rest of his environment. Marion pushed open the kitchen door and continued to wipe dry his large skillet as she looked up at the roof. She still looked like a teenager herself in her jeans and bulky sweater. Now, however, she was perturbed at her nephew. Sam, are you still up there? Marion shouted. Sam turned and stepped toward the railing. Yes, Aunt Marion, he said sheepishly. You have a school day tomorrow, so finish what you're doing up there. 
She stared at Sam as he turned away, looking at his receiving dish, then back at his aunt. She waited patiently for a reply. Now, he asked, her hands, one hand, holding a dish towel, the other grasping the skillet rested on her hips. Sam knew what that meant. Yes, now, she said sternly. She then went into the house. Sam turned back to his receiving dishes and shook one of the concave fiberglass bowls gently, trying to inch it toward some alignment. Then, leaning back against the railing, he pulled a small handheld transceiver from his belt, flipped several micro-miniature switches and punched in numbers on the touchtone pad. A quiet beep accompanied each numerical insertion. He tightened the stubby, rubber duck antenna and pulled the microphone speaker to his mouth. WA6JER, this is K6ZDQ. Ephraim, are you there? Sam's friend Ephraim was sitting up in bed, surrounded by a scattered conglomeration of comic books. He was catching up on some light reading. Ephraim rolled his chunky body toward the nightstand and picked up his handheld transceiver. It was a different make and design from Sam's, but the function was similar. As Ephraim began to talk, he also began to pick his nose. This foul habit was seldom seen except at night or when Ephraim dropped his guard. A J-E-R, so I'm busy. What's up? Ephraim pulled his radio away from his face and rested it on his lap. He looked over at a small desk cluttered with amateur radio equipment, much less sophisticated than Sam's. This made Ephraim extremely jealous. He never dropped his guard about that. Sam's compressed voice rattled the speaker of Ephraim's radio. My SETI dish, that's what. I finally fixed the motor tracker for the dish. You want to come over and listen with me some more tonight? Have you heard Mitch Arallo on tonight? Ephraim looked at the green digital clock prominently placed on his equipment desk. I haven't heard either, and Mom won't let me. It's too late. You're going to have to listen for the little green men yourself. Sam stepped a few short paces toward a ragged-looking chaise lounge. He adjusted the back to a more vertical position and swung his body carefully into the chaise. Okay, K6ZDQ, clear. See you in school tomorrow. Go back to picking and don't hit any blood vessels. You'll bleed to death. Ha ha, very funny. J-E-R, clear. Ephraim replied quickly. There was a short burst of squelch and Sam's radio was quiet. Sam flipped the power switch to off and let the radio rest on his stomach. One hand was behind his head as he looked up at the moonless night sky. Turning slightly to his right, he watched the wind rustle the tops of the several trees nearby, the Mexican fan palm trees. He loved to hear the gentle swishing of the fronds. That sound was as much California as the pungent smell of the chaparral wafting down from the nearby hillside. The sound and sight and smell of the warm California night relaxed him and then lulled him toward sleep. His eyes grew heavy. His grip on the handheld transceiver grew weak. Sam slipped into sleep as above and around him the thin aluminum tubing swayed with the ebb and flow of the breeze. The streets and neighborhood around Sam's roof and in the Alexander house were quiet. Most families were settled in and beginning to sleep for the night. Dogs had stopped barking. 
at that moment not unlike any other moment since March 1899, when Guglielmo Marconi sent the first wireless radio message across the English Channel. Radio frequency signals saturated the atmosphere. That part of the electromagnetic spectrum was always alive with activity. At any moment, at any location, a radio signal of some sort could be detected, amplified, and turned into sound waves with proper equipment. And those signals, at wavelengths that penetrated the ionosphere, flew away from Earth at the speed of light. The Earth became a radio frequency lighthouse beginning at the turn of the 20th century. As Sam sank deeper and deeper into sleep, those terrestrial radio signals were all around him. His forest of antennas was at attention, ready to catch the stray electron flows that drifted by. But it was one of the satellite dishes and antennas, activated 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that detected an unusual extraterrestrial electron flow. The focus point of Sam's Alpha satellite dish captured that signal and guided it through the low-noise amplifier and toward the connecting coaxial cable. The signal traveled at the speed of light through the cable through the antenna signal amplification equipment in his room. The signal then sped through several other pieces of equipment, receivers, amplifiers, spectrum analyzers, and a small box marked META in orange letters, and then into Sam's computer. At that moment, two events simultaneously occurred. A raspy white noise spilled out of a small speaker mounted on an amplifier crammed with switches and meters, and buried deep in the white noise, a moderately pitched warbling tone grew steadily louder. Accompanying this sound, a multicolored graph quickly formed on a color monitor resting on top of the computer. With various axes plotted and detailed, a thin green line stretched across the screen. But in the middle of the line, a narrow but steep spike formed, dominating the graph. The pyramid-shaped spike continued up to almost the top of the screen. The graph flickered as the signal strength and the sound of the white noise and tone component dropped. Then the signal strength came back to its original level. The whirring of a nearby computer disk drive added to the noise. The graph suddenly moved up and was squeezed as a message began to scroll across the bottom of the screen. The desolate northern Mojave Desert was home to the coyote, the rattlesnake, and the sensitive listening post known as Goldstone Deep Space Tracking Network, a gigantic 230-foot parabolic dish system sat at a natural bowl-shaped location that protected it from Earth-generated radio interference. At the base of the large disk, a cluster of support building housed the manpower and equipment needed to receive faint radio signals and send them on their way to NASA and JPL for interpretation. The monitoring engineer was not at his location as the primary computer screen abruptly cleared an endlessly moving line of data. There was a pause. Then a graph appeared, a solid line with only the slightest hint of a pyramid spike. An almost inaudible raspy white noise and modulated warbling tone 
emanated from a speaker somewhere in the control room. Sam's radio telescope wasn't the only telescope that night that received the strange signal. 